Robert Bringhurst is one of Canada's most highly regarded typographers and book designers, as well as one of the most respected and best-known poets. He's taught literature, art history, and typography history at several universities and held fellowships from the Canada Council and the Guggenheim Foundation. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I'd like to start off with a quote from The Surface of Meaning, Books and Book Design in Canada, a reaction to the history of the book in Canada, published by the University of Toronto Press. And what you are particularly keen on seeing is the intellectual or literary sense of which might really constitute a book or why books matter to the human species. So I wonder why books matter to the human species. Well, there are a lot of ways of thinking about books. Depending on which one of these paths you follow, you might arrive at the conclusion that books really don't matter very much to the human species or that they cause more harm than good. Books have caused a great deal of harm, it seems to me. Bible, for example. (laughs) It's not exactly the Bible's fault, right? It's it's what human beings do with their books that, that, that is the problem. But they have been used like ropes and whips and guns for atrocious purposes as well as for more sensible ones. To some people, books are just the printed objects, and it's, it's really the printing process that they're in love with, or the, the, the fact that they get to see their own words sitting there in black and white, or, or hold them in their hands. They like the, the weight of books and the, the physicality of them. The beauty. And so do I. But I think that by those standards, even the telephone book is a book. This is not a very helpful way to, to look at things. Books. To me, as a as a writer, as a, as a maker of books, it seems to me only worth the trouble if there is really something in there. They're containers. And the value of a container is not in itself, but in what you what it contains, what what it allows you to, to keep. So the ideas, the the content, as opposed to the actual physicality. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. not, not as opposed to the physicality, but as ideally incarnate in, in this mm-hmm. physical thing. But the Combined. The, the, the content is the reason for making the book in the first place, and, uh, and if you really put the content into the book, it looks like it belongs there, and, and then, it, then you've got something. It's a body with a soul, and if it's just a body, maybe it's more a corpse than a, than a living creature, or a scarecrow, or a, or a stuffed animal, or a trophy head, or, or something. These, these are not really valuable things, although some people decorate their houses with them. We live in a country where printing is in fact quite a recent preoccupation, but human beings have been living here for tens of thousands of years and possibly for hundreds of thousands of years. Speaking beautiful and complicated languages and telling stories and passing on information and exchanging ideas, and they've been doing it for most of this time by purely oral means without any, any writing, any printing. There are are indigenous writing systems in the New World, so-called, but they don't seem to have gone very far outside of central Mexico, the the Mayan area in particular. But people tell stories everywhere. When I think of of that kind of oral literature as as the the original form of the the book, because it's an intangible book, but those are the, the... uh, yes, I mean that's the motivation for making a physical book, right? Is that there is this intangible stuff that people have in their heads and, and, and that they try to communicate by very successfully uh, uh, to one another by speaking, by telling stories. So I like to think of the book as a cultural universal, something that everybody's got. It is that only, 
some people, you know, there is no book until it becomes physical, and, and, and if then you end up worshiping the physical form uh, and forgetting about the, the content, I think you've, you've done yourself a disservice. In Canada especially, if we look at books that way, we end up just writing off indigenous culture altogether. I think that's unwise. But I mean, there must be a reason why we call it books versus storytelling. I mean, storytelling is storytelling. Books are the physical manifestation of that storytelling. That's one way of looking at it. I think that storytelling is, is a cultural universal too, but a lot of the stories that get told are not terribly important. I went to the store this morning and I bought a pint of milk and I stopped on the way home and visited my friend Fred and we had some coffee together. That's a story, but is it, are we going to put this in a book? Uh, why bother? But there are stories uh, that become crucially important, not only to individuals, but to whole cultures. And those are those are books in some sense. Those are Bibles, even. Right? So myths, Cars, and myths and life, life yeah. lessons. Yes, yes. Those yeah. are the things that that provide a real motivation for inventing the physical book, the way to, to preserve the story so that they can be transmitted o- over much greater distances in time and in space. Well, a way of honoring it, too. Yes, yes. yes and then you have a reason for really turning the book into into something special, for, for, for making those massive and sometimes very beautiful volumes that we go to the library to because we can't afford uh, uh, to keep it home. There's something that really drives people to make books. I mean, a lot of people say they have no interest in poetry or they don't read literature or something, but almost everybody, if you poke them a little bit, turns out to, you know, to, 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 to feel that they know something that's worth preserving, and the, the, in some sense, that's their unwritten book. You put it beautifully, too. You talk about the fact that books, whether oral or written, are are among the most powerful means we have for transmitting non-genetic heredity. Humans are not by any means the only species that have cultural life. All mammals do this, and birds. They all teach things to their young. But but humans make a, a really big production out of it. In other words, we transmit things to our children and grandchildren not only by genetic means, but by non-genetic or exogenetic means. That's what culture is, and that's what books ultimately are for, I think. They're they're ways of transmitting information that that the genes can't carry from parent to child, uh, grandparent to grandchild, from the ancients to the modern and also across, laterally across cultural lines. You know, I mean, how else are we going to learn anything from the Ojibwe or the Haida? Uh, we need to read one another's books, uh, uh, unless we're lucky enough to be able to sit at the feet of some storytellers in a lot of different cultures and hear what they have to say. The physical book is a very convenient form of messenger service between cultures as well as between you know, the elders and the, and the youngers. And usually successful as a piece of technology. It is very successful. Yeah. Very, 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 really very simple yeah. technology, but, but very, very powerful. I, I love how you say that books are as basic to us humans as nests are to birds. Well, they might be. You know, they just might be. But the bird's nest is another you know, really incredible piece of technology. Simple. You know, I mean, it looks like anybody could do it, but it's, it's tried. 
<laughs> Get yourself some moss and sticks and see what you can do with it. You know, it's funny, I just mentioned I was in Africa and I, I saw some of the weaver birds' oh. uh, nests. And uh, of course, the more elaborate the nest, the more females the male who makes it right. attracts. Right. Well, it's been known to work like that with books, too. I'm speaking with, with Robert Brinkhurst, who has just uh, published his selected poems, and prior to that, a book called The Surface of Meaning Books and Book Design in Canada. You have a gorgeous quote from Pasternak's uh, Dr. Zhivago here. She reads as if that were not the highest human activity, but something very simple within the powers of a draft animal, as if she were carrying water or peeling potatoes. Not long afterwards, he sees her bringing water from the well and thinks to himself, it's the other way, too. She carries water as if she were reading, lightly, without effort. That's a very beautiful book. Uh, uh, those two passages come from some distance. Some one of the first ones occurs when Zhivago uh, sees his, his lover, Alara, uh, in, a, in, a, in a library. He's been out, you know, having a rough time for a, for a while, and you can just feel the relief with which she comes into this this big, probably cold, not necessarily terribly hospitable library, but it, it, it's a still, quiet place where people sit in chairs and they look at books. And you can feel in this scene how precious the books are to the people who are living there. Their country's being torn to shreds by their fellow Russians, right? Chewing their own society apart, uh, people come to the library looking for answers, looking for clues to how to put the world back together again. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there he sees this, the woman he loves bent over a book, reading, obviously, with, with great intensity. And, and, and yet, he says, you know, as if anybody could do it, as if, as if you didn't even have to be human. But how perceptive that is. I mean, look, look at the way the, the, the squirrels and the crows and the, the, the cows and the sheep go about their business. They just, you know, I mean, really devoting themselves to eating that grass or poking through that garbage or dismantling that spruce cone. And there she is. But it's just making, reading just regal. Making reading regal. Real. Making real. And making it into, into a, a, a something that's really important. That unites us to the to the rest of creation instead of separating humans as some sort of weird people who spend their lives indoors and do things that other animals don't, don't do. He, he, he sees reading as part of the part of the larger continuum of animal life that we all participate in. Sort of fulfilling what we're supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Even though. Doesn't it depend upon the degree of curiosity that that particular person has? Well, of course. But so we're not all fulfilling this role, or? Well, many of us live in a world where curiosity appears to, to be a luxury, but in the real world it's not a luxury at all. You'll die if you don't, if you don't pay attention. If you're not interested, it comes to the same thing, being dead and being not interested. You have enough central heating and enough uh, administrative babysitting, never encounter the, 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 the simple reality of, of life.
books uh, are meaningless then if, I mean, if, if somebody really wants to read them they have no value no matter how well written they are no matter how beautifully printed they are uh, beautifully designed that animal foundation has to be there the appetite for, for, for ideas as well as for, for other kinds of nourishment I think the Pasternak has, has captured that simple truth as well as anyone I've ever, ever encountered in a book. I recently was browsing through Keats's letters ah. and I came across something similar. It was this intense desire to take the next couple of years off and just absorb as much knowledge as he could, that's what he was saying, to a friend. Uh, would you, would you suggest then that poets have this curiosity, this need to a greater degree than, than most? Oh, I think in the real world, everybody is uh, a poet to some degree. Go into some country that isn't terribly prosperous and spend a day with children, you know, and everybody's got a story to, to tell and everybody's excited about something. I mean, I mean, maybe a sick kid who's not excited about anything just because he's sick that day, but in a state of reasonable health, everybody's excited about something. It takes a while to, to destroy this this excitement in people, but it can be done if you work at it. <laughs> in our society, poets are people who refuse to, to have their spark extinguished or who just somehow luck out and, and don't quite get smothered. It's there, everybody, I think. One of the other points that you bring up in The Surface of Meaning is the importance of the visual and sculptural aspects of books. I wonder if you could to that. Well, the books that we see nowadays are often terribly flat and they're printed by offset lithography usually. If not that, they might be printed by something even worse, like photocopying essentially. So the ink lies on the surface of the paper. The paper itself is often just you know, the cheapest thing a publisher can get away with. It has no character, it has no texture, it has no color. And the ink is terribly thin gruel that, that runs on a web press often and, and it's sort of gray and slimy and the result it has no sculptural uh, vitality at all but it's not very long ago that books were pretty only printed by letterpress I mean, you can make an ugly book by letterpress too if you work at it but the process is inherently physical right? you got the, the, the type is three-dimensional stuff and you put ink on it and the ink is thick enough and, and tacky enough that it sits right there on the surface of the metal waiting for something else to, to happen and then you actually push this metal into the paper and you leave a, a, a footprint, a mind print, an imprint in, in the sheet so that the ink has a, a little bell to sit in. And, and there's nothing that feels quite as wonderful as running your hand over a page yeah. of the steam letter setup. Yeah. So, I mean, was often better, not always, but often better stuff than we often have now. So the paper itself has a, has a, a, a real tactile as well as visual quality. It has real color, it has real texture, a weave. If I understand, if I can read it, then who cares? Well, I care, for one. If I, you know, I think a lot of other people care, too. If your way of courting girls is, is by printing books and sticking them under their noses, um, <laughs> uh, where Weaver Bird, of course, Lady Weaver Birds, and then there's 
visual and tactile qualities is important. So it's about love then? Might be. Might be. Not just love of girls, love of ideas, love of the world itself. The, as you say, love the ideas to the point where you feel that it should be presented in, in, a, in a special sort of way. Well, not too special. It, it doesn't have to be something terribly rare and refined. It could be part of our daily lives, this, this making, making things well, making, making them physically answerable to the quality of the mind that, that underlies them. I would not have been happy, I suppose, in Keats's England, Keats's London. When the library in those days was a place where one could go for relief from the drab grayness of industrial European civilization, lousy air of the cities and the lousy food. And in the library you could find the grandfathers, Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare and Goethe and Dante, all, all sitting there, and every one of them in, in books that were uh, made by this very physical process in which the the words are assembled letter by letter by hand, using actual pieces of physical material, and then ink is put on there, and, and it's driven into the paper, and it leaves this impression, and the paper is folded up and bound. And you open it, and you're you're opening not only this world of ideas, but this world of physical activity in the service of ideas. But what about Keats going out to the beautiful countryside and writing about autumn? Well. That's better than going to a stuffy old library. It is. Isn't it? It's way better. But it's not. It's the, the, he's going to the library then too. See, that's the original library. That world out there, that forest, those meadows, those pastures. That's the library we were born in. We answer it by building little libraries and little books to put in the little libraries. But the original library is the original book, the world itself, where all the ideas have physical incarnations or, or they're not there at all. People that make the books are a bit like God then making the earth, if there is such an entity. Uh, a bit like God, but a lot smaller, yes. I mean, we are physical beings. It's just nice, if you're a physical being, to be able to give an idea a physical form. You might do it by painting, you might do it by carving wood or stone, or building something up out of bricks or tile. You also might do it by building something up out of words. Only the words are just barely tangible. They're just these little evanescent sensations that we feel in our mouths and we speak. Or if you give them a real physical form, their language becomes even more pleasant to deal with than it might have been otherwise. Let's, if we could, turn to your, uh, I'm speaking with uh, Robert Bringhurst, who is a world-renowned expert on typography. I suppose your most famous book would be The Elements of Typographic Style, and I'd like to quote from it. There are always exceptions, always excuses for stunts and surprises, but perhaps we can agree that as a rule, typography should perform these services for the reader, and perhaps what we could do is go through each one. The first one is invite the reader into the text. Sounds simple enough, but you know, a lot of the typography that I see nowadays in advertisements and placards in the Toronto subway, uh, handbills that are posted around the town, doesn't invite me into anything at all. It causes me to turn my back on, on whatever it is. 
Uh, maybe that's just because I'm old and out of fashion. Maybe it's because the idea of hospitality, typographic hospitality, has really disappeared in some quarters. The shock and astonish. You're suggesting that, that much of what you see today doesn't really invite you, it more or less tries to bash you over the head with its existence. Yes, and I, I imagine that this is a product of uh, overcompetition. There's so many advertisers and snake oil salesmen out there desperately eager to attract attention. So many characters like me publishing their poems or their books or whatever it is, eager to get some share of readership. That that we've stopped actually inviting people into our books and starting to try to reach out and grab them by the throat. Well, it's not a way to read. How do you invite them then? Well, same way I invite people into your home. Not by painting in hideous and garish colors and putting uh, nails in the door frame, but, but by, uh, by making it peaceful and uh, serene and graceful and orderly, and making sure that it isn't too full, making sure that there's actually, actually a room for people, for people to come in and participate. Yeah. Second rule, if you will, reveal the tenor and meaning of the text. Yeah, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But so many books are designed by people who've never read the the text. So they're they're just following some typographic fashion or some house style. It's it's entirely independent of the thing that's going to be conveyed or offered here. The Uh, feeling or the... uh, If if you make Dr. Zhivago, for example, look like a rule book federal court system, you've done a terrible disservice. Or if you make menu in your restaurant look like um, kind of a set of instructions for operating a hair dryer. That's pretty self-evident, though. It seems like it. But know. it isn't. <laughs> well, just, you know, spend t- t- take a day sometime counting up all the, the typographic disasters that you see compared with the number of typographic successes. Uh, just, in, you know, in, in a normal day, going about doing whatever you do. Reading the newspaper, looking at the magazine, looking at the menu, and the cafe or the, the advertisements posted along the sidewalk or the signage overhead warning signs that we put up telling people not to touch this and not to turn that valve and not to cross this line and so forth. There's an awful lot of typographic brutality out there and for some people uh, brutality becomes a fashion. Just It just obviously isn't a good fashion. I could certainly recommend your book, The Surface of Meaning, which won first prize at the Alcuin. Yes, uh, it did. It did. Okay. In the Alcuin Society, is a society dedicated to celebrating the best in book design, based in BC. Yeah, I had an easy time with The Surface of Meaning because it was a, a book that was uh, subsidized by a generous book lover named Don Atkins, a wonderful man who wanted this book to exist and wanted it to be well printed. So there's an awful lot of expensive color printing in that book. It's printed on good paper. It's a generous size. Thousands of dollars worth of fine photography in there. Books are very difficult things to photograph. I mean, there's so much digital information in that book. I had to buy a new computer in order to, to have something big enough and fast enough to run it. That's not physically the biggest book I've ever done, but electronically, it's, it's far and away the biggest basket full of electronic data with all those images, many of them over 100 megabytes apiece. And that's because the grain of, of information in a printed book is, is in fact very fine. Letter forms are, are very detailed, tiny uh, 
objects and our eyes are, are after decades of reading, you know, very, very closely attuned to small differences uh, in those things, and I, I wanted to show those things, so the, the photographs had to, had to be very, very high resolution, they had to be taken under very carefully controlled lighting condition. Uh, all this had to be, you know, transmitted to the press and on the press uh, to the paper. So it was a very expensive book to produce, so like without Don Atkins' financial support, this could never have been done. At the end of it, you list the Alcuin, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, Alcuin. Alcuin societies, the winners of their awards uh, since the 1981 or 1980. I suppose that'd be a good place for people to look for and find examples of what, what you're talking about here, revealing the tenor and meaning of the text. Yeah, the Alcuin Society collection was very helpful to me when I was working on this, on this book. The, their archive was stored at Simon Fraser University. Spent many days out there pouring through these. I mean, I'll get a lot of other books as well, but that, that collection is a very handy guide to what's happened in Canadian book design over the last 25 or 27 years. We've got three more here, and we've got about four more minutes, so uh, <laughs> we'll do justice to these. But clarify the structure and the order of the text, link the text with other existing elements induce a state of energetic repose, which is the ideal condition for reading. Well, that goes back to the, the idea of making people welcome in your, in your home, I think. Uh, energetic repose is something that we find in an environment where there are some things, and the things are not clamoring for attention, but, but are sort of restful in themselves, and they're uh, in some kind of order, but the order is not overdone. It's not Spellifying, it's not impressive, in which there's empty space, there's room, there's room for a reader to come into a book, there's room for a visitor to come into a house. Uh, he must have had the, the experience of going to visit some relative or somebody somewhere and being put to stay in a guest room that was so crammed with other objects that you felt like you couldn't wedge yourself into it. But a real guest room has room for the guest. Maybe even a place where he can hang up his coat. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting, too, just to compare that to the actual content itself, particularly with a novel. Yeah. If the author doesn't allow the reader any, any yeah. space into exactly. the text, exactly. then it's nowhere near the experience that it could be. The author has to give, leave the, the room for the reader's brain, for the reader to, to read the book. The designer has to leave room for the, the reader to to have a mind of his own or her own and uh, enter into the text. And every text has a structure. Every, every text has an order. Sometimes it, it, if it's a, a cookbook or a law book or a course outline, the structure may be perfectly obvious, uh, uh, but it still needs to be typographically expressed to, so we can find our way around. In a novel, the, the structure may be deliberately hidden but it's there, and you have to leave enough room for the reader to find it, if, if, if that's the thing to do, or, or maybe you need to find it for the reader and, and make it clear. Poets often pay more attention to structure, in some sense, than, than prose writers do, but not all it. And so, you know, often their manuscripts come already structured in some way, not necessarily the best way, but in some way, and if you're a typographer and a 
done for you. Uh, might be done badly, but it's one way or another it's been done. Somebody's made an attempt. Prose tends to to arrive foremost. You know, when you get the, the yards and yards of sentences strung together, and, uh, and you have to, if you're designing the book, you have to find some kind of order in this substance, uh, or or create one. There is a in every culture there's a there's a kind of normal form for the for the book and sometimes that's all a typographer can do is to make the text look like your sort of generic book in in that culture whatever it is and that's a service in itself it's like putting milk into a carton it doesn't especially make any difference whether the carton is square and cross-section or round, uh, it's, it's whatever whatever we find conventional or comfortable in this culture, but it, but it ought to be something you can get your hand around so that you can pour the milk into your glass, if that's what you want to do. Well, thank you so much for clearing the space for us to uh, engage with you. Robert Bringhurst is one of Canada's most highly regarded typographers and book designers, as well as one of the most respected and best-known poets.